probably the most important distinction between the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Testament or the New Covenant involves the third person of the Holy Trinity, that is the person of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, he takes somewhat of a background role and he existed as an entity, as an agent, absolutely involved in all that God did um, inside the world. But in the Old Covenant, he existed exclusively outside of man. We would see the Holy Spirit come upon a life from time to time, whether it would be a prophet or a priest or a king or a person uh, for their life or for a portion of their life to do an act or for a work. But by and large, he existed in the world outside of man in the Old Covenant or Old Testament. In the New Testament, however, it is a completely different story. The Holy Spirit takes a front and center role in this relationship that we have with God is what he's doing in the world today. The Holy Spirit now in the New Testament, absolutely still in the world, but no longer outside of man, the Holy Spirit now exists inside of man. And the, 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 the powerful and most impacting part of his work is his work in and then also through our lives. Now, this is a most mysterious and most puzzling thing to think about, that the Holy Spirit of God, the person of God, the invisible God, could live inside of a human life. But it's exactly what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do uh, in, in this new covenant relationship that we have with God. In John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus said these words. He said, and I will pray to the Father, speaking of once he departs, and he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you even forever. Even the spirit of truth, that's who the comforter is, whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and he shall be, and notice that that's in the future tense, in you. The prior to Jesus dying on the cross and rising again from the dead, the Holy Spirit existed in the world but outside of man. Now, what do you mean that he would future dwell in them, even though Jesus was in the world? Well, in John chapter 7, we get the answer to that. When Jesus spoke during the Feast of um, Tabernacles, and it says in verse 37 of chapter 7, it says, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus speaks to the disciples and he says that you will have an experience with the Holy Spirit that goes beyond what you have experienced previously when he will go from being an outside entity who is simply with you or alongside and he will move into your life, into your very body, and that he will be in you. But the timing of that won't be until I die and rise and am glorified, and then the Father sends the Spirit from heaven, and then this new covenant relationship wherein I indwell you, that that will then begin. Well, when we come to the book of Acts in the New Testament, we see this uh, what Jesus spoke of, at work then in the lives of the Christians there. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we have the words of Jesus recorded, wherein he said that you will receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and then you shall be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, and then Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And so you move through the narrative of the rest of chapter 1, and then when you get to chapter 2, it says that when the day of Pentecost was fully come and the disciples were all gathered in the upper room with one mind and with one accord, that suddenly there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind and that the place where they were was suddenly filled and the Holy Spirit was given and each one of them at that point 
became indwelt by the Spirit of God. Not some of them for a specific work, like it was in the Old Testament, but all of those that were gathered there that believed in Jesus Christ were then filled with the Spirit of God in their lives, and there was a very obvious change that took place in them from what they were to what they then would be from that point until the rest of their life. Now, that change was not just in the apostles. It wasn't something that was just given to the church leaders, but rather it was given to every Christian. At the end of that chapter, when Peter preached his sermon and he spoke to the multitude of those that were gathered there in Jerusalem, And they asked the question and they said, what is this that we're seeing in these things that we're hearing? The answer that Peter gave is that this is the Holy Spirit that God promised that he would give. And he said these words. He said that the promise is to you and to your children, even as many as are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Meaning that this New Testament relationship with God that we have been called into, that we're privileged to be a part of, that is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God inside our lives, is not something that is to be for a select few whom God chooses out of a multitude. But rather, every person who is a believer in Jesus Christ is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. That is the New Testament distinction. His home is made in us. Now what that means, it means that the Holy Spirit, even to this day, is looking for bodies that he can possess or that he can indwell. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, a very famous passage that's often quoted. It's written by the Apostle Paul. He says to the church there in Romans, he says, therefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, that's what God is looking for, as a living sacrifice, not that you would die, but that you would continue to live, living sacrifices unto God that are holy because of the blood of Jesus, acceptable because of the blood and the new covenant unto God, And he says that this is your reasonable service. There's a whole lot that we're not going to unpack within those two verses. But the long story short of what Paul is saying there is that the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ has made us qualified to be called holy and acceptable before God. And therefore, what he is asking of us in his mercy is that we would present our bodies to him that he might let the Holy Spirit of God, his very person, indwell us and that that's the way that we would live the rest of our lives on earth from the time that we give our lives to him, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Now you say, why in the world would God, the Holy Spirit, have an interest in my body? Why does God want to indwell or possess me? And the answer to that question is what we have in our study here tonight. What we saw last week in the first half of chapter 5 of this book, 2 Corinthians, was Paul's testimony that the drive that produced his influence in the world was given to him by the person of the Holy Spirit within his life. And he describes that drive for us in the first half of the chapter. He says that the Spirit of God gave to him a motivation for heaven. He was eternally motivated. And that the Holy Spirit inside of him also gave to him a deep desire and longing to please the Father, that that was in him from the Holy Spirit. The third thing was that the Holy Spirit gave to him a proper fear of God. That He said, because we know the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. He had a fear of heaven and a fear of God and the fear of a wasted life which is a good thing. It motivated him, but it was there by the Spirit of God. And then we touched the fourth thing that drove him, which he says uh, there in verse um, 15, when he says that the love of Christ constrains us. And so the fourth thing that drove Paul by the Holy Spirit was the manifested love of Christ within his life. And probably the most important reason 
that you and I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and that we need to daily seek God for his filling within our lives is this very thing, is because the Holy Spirit is the source, the very source of the experiential love of God in our lives. Now, there is a such thing as the instructional or the theoretic love of God in our lives. And a difference between that and what is the experiential love of Christ within our lives. See, it's possible for us to intellectually ascend to the place where we say, yes, we know that God is love. And yes, we know and can comprehend in our mind that God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. And we can quantify and qualify that love based upon our knowledge of the action that demonstrated that love in God sending his son to the cross. But all of that is an intellectual exercise that brings us to an ideology or a theory concerning the love of Christ, but none of that is experiential. You can have all of that and yet at no point be touched by that love or that your life would be affected by that love in a way that translates into something that is tangible or that looks like something. That's experiential. And what Paul is testifying to us here is that in this new covenant relationship that we have with God, wherein his spirit, not outside, but comes inside of our life, that while he's there, his love, the love of Christ, is made known in such a way that it does something to us. He describes it in verse 15 as a constraining source. That is, it grabs a hold of the life in such a way that that life is driven by that love and that there's nothing else that that life can do but what that love dictates and, and impedes and imposes upon because that love becomes the driving factor of the life. That's experiential. It's not theoretic. It's not intellectual. It's not knowledge. It's depth. It's reality. And it's what Paul says drove him. And that is the work and the operation and the reason why we need the Holy Spirit constantly within our life. But Paul doesn't stop in verse 15 talking about this. He goes on from there. And the reason he goes on is because the constraining love of Christ shed abroad in us by the Holy Spirit that's been given does something else within us as well. Once the love of Christ has gripped our lives, it goes on from there and it does more. And it's what Paul now goes on to explain in answering this question of why the Holy Spirit wants me. What does he want to do with me? What does the Holy Spirit and the love of Christ do within me? Well, the first thing, and there's uh, four things for us to consider in the remainder of this chapter um, and it's in verses 14 and 15, is that the love of Christ is an all-consuming love. And so the love of Christ given to us by the Holy Spirit, what it will do within our life, or the first thing that it will produce within our life is that it will seek to consume every part of our lives. Notice again what he says uh, there in the passage. He says in verse 14, he says, for the love of Christ constrains us because we thus judge or evaluate or conclude that if one died for all, that is Jesus who died for us, then were all dead. That is that if Jesus had to take the place of all of humanity in the place of death, then the reason why Jesus had to do that is because that's where we would have ended up if he didn't. All of us were dead apart from him. So, verse 15, that he died for all, the reason now or the rationale or response is that they which live, that's us, should not henceforth or from now on live unto themselves or for our own sake, but unto him which died for them and rose again. And so the first thing that the love of Christ will do within my life when it has gripped me experientially is that it will reason with me to the point where I no longer live for myself, but I live completely and totally for his sake alone. And that's what the love of Christ will do within me. And here's how that works. is because once I realize, and it takes some time for a person to realize this once they come to Christ, but once I realize that everything that I am apart from him, 
is dead. It's nothing. If you take my life and you subtract Jesus from that life, what do you have left over? Nothing. Because it ends in death and then it ultimately finds its destiny in hell, separated from God eternally. So me minus Christ equals zero. And so therefore, anything that I would live for apart from Christ or any purpose that I might attach myself to in my life apart from Christ is worth absolutely nothing because it would end in the place of death and absolute and total separation from God forever. And so once the love of Christ grips me and I realize that that's all that is in me that carries any value at all, then rationally I come to the conclusion that there's nothing else worth living for other than his purpose and his will and his pleasure because that's the only thing that's going to last. Everything else that's in my life is ultimately going to die. And so the love of Christ constrains me and it brings me under its power to the point where I recognize and realize that it's a worthy love and it's worthy of everything that I have. And that takes some time and it takes some some convincing, doesn't it? It takes some trust as we recognize and realize who he is and that he's worth me giving everything to him and bringing everything under his subjection and under his purposes. And so if trading places with me meant a cross for him, then everything I am apart from him results in eventual nothing and therefore he's the only thing worth living for. And the more his love gets in and affects my life, the less all else matters to me. And so his person, his will, and his purposes are the only thing that matter in the life. And that's what the love of Christ does when the Holy Spirit really grabs a hold of us is that he convinces us that Jesus is worthy of all. He's all-consuming. And doesn't the Bible teach that? Do you remember when Moses first had his encounter with God after 40 years of wandering in the desert? What was it that God used to get his attention? It was a bush in the desert that was burning with fire and yet was not consumed. A brush fire in that climate was nothing out of the ordinary. But a brush fire wherein the object that was being consumed wasn't consumed would be of great interest to anybody walking through the desert there in those days. And even a shepherd who had seen it all at 80 years old said, I will even turn aside and see what this thing is, why the bush is burned, but the bush is not consumed. And it was as if Moses, for the first time in his life, had seen the very thing that he was looking for. He was looking for something that could consume all, but yet not destroy the thing that was being consumed. And that's the only thing in the world, the love of Christ. It's the only thing that can consume a human life and not destroy it, but keep the fire burning continually and endlessly. And that's what the love of Christ does within the, 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 the heart of any person that, that it's touched by. It consumes all. That's what it will seek to do. Now, he doesn't steal it. He waits for us to yield it to him as we trust him. And so the fire burns. The second thing that the love of Christ does or the Holy Spirit um, does in us by shedding the love of God abroad in our hearts is that he, he sees us as we are not and then he makes us what we are not. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 16. He says, wherefore or henceforth or from now on because of this, because of the constraining love of Christ that consumes all things, because of that, from now on, we know no man after the flesh. That is according to the outward, the observable, the things that we can see or know about a person. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now, henceforth, from now on, know we him no more. Therefore, and don't worry, we're going to go back and pull this apart. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, Behold, all things become new. Notice what he says there concerning um, what the Spirit of God does in the life of a person. He says, first of all, he says, because the Spirit is in us and because we belong to Christ and because we're, we're being consumed by his love, he says one of, the, one of the things that we do is that we no longer know anyone or look at anyone according to their flesh or according to what it is on the outside. 
We don't make our evaluations or our estimations of people based upon what we see or what we know about them. He says we don't know them that way any longer. The, the, the love of Christ and the cross of Christ and the truth of Christ has changed all of that. And, and what he does is he gives the example or the illustration before the application. He says, listen, even with Jesus, he says, there was a time that we knew Christ after the flesh, according to the outward. But now, from now on, we don't know him that way anymore. Well, what's he saying? He said, well, listen, if you were to look at Jesus and you were to size him up according to the things that you could see and observe within his life, you would come to certain conclusions. But no matter what those conclusions are, they would be wrong. They would be really wrong. You would say, okay, he's a carpenter from Galilee who got bored with his trade and became an itinerant preacher who had a talent and gathered a following and then was crucified for political causes. That would be you know, a part of the estimation that you would make. You would say he's a charismatic leader. You would say, as some of them did, that perhaps he's a prophet like Jeremiah or Ezekiel or one of them from the Old Covenant. You would say that he's a follower or a disciple of John the Baptist who is now carrying the baton, as some of them did who looked at Christ after the flesh. But in every instance where someone looked at Jesus' life, sized him up, evaluated what they saw, and tried to come to a conclusion they were absolutely wrong about their observations. Who was he? The only people that actually ever got to see it on this side of eternity were Peter, James, and John, who on the Mount of Transfiguration saw him transfigured before them. And it says that, that he began to shine like light that was brighter than the noontime sun, so much that they couldn't look at him anymore. In that one moment, in that one experience and instant, everything that was on the inside of Christ that wasn't discernible from the outward suddenly became manifested on the outside and they saw for that split second the glory of what he actually was. But then it ended and he was again veiled by human flesh and all you could see was the outside. Paul is saying it was impossible and is impossible to know the depths of who he is based upon what you saw on the outside. And now he's applying that to any person who's filled with the Spirit of God in the way that they would look at any other person in the world, believer or unbeliever. That it is absolutely impossible for you and I to look at another human being and to really know what it is that God sees when he looks at that human life. What it is or what it will become. We know no man any longer after the flesh. Why? Here's why. He says it in verse 17. He says, because if any man be in Christ, speaking of the believer, that he then is a new creation. Old things, that is everything that was, the upbringing, the class that that man or woman was brought up in, the things that shaped their life, the things that were a part of their life, the vices and habits that defined who they were, Everything that made up that life is passed away. It is gone. And it says there that all things then become new. And what that means is this. It means that when a person gives their life to Jesus Christ, what God sees when he looks at that person, the moment that they stand up or decide in their heart that they're going to receive Christ or come forward or respond to an invitation or pray that prayer or open that heart in the quietness in the way that they do, that the moment that person does that, God no longer sees that person for what they were or what they are. He sees them for what they will be when they're glorified. In John chapter 1, verse 42, it was right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It was when he was first calling the 12 apostles, those that would come and follow him. It tells us in that verse that Jesus laid eyes on Peter for the very first time. It says that Jesus beheld Peter. The only time in the New Testament that that word in the Greek is used, beheld, and it means that he examined him through and through that he discerned him, not just on the outside, how tall he was and the color of his hair, the shape of his face, but that he looked at him through supernatural eyes and he saw everything that that man was and everything that he would be from then until eternity. 
And the words that came out of Jesus' mouth after beholding Peter that way, he said, you are Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. But you shall be Peter, Petras, little stone. Jesus looked at that man's life in one moment and saw not what he was or had been, but he saw what he would be when the work of God was completed within his life. And he saw a completely different person than what stood before him in that moment. He said, you are this, but you shall be this. And such is the case with every person that God lays eyes on. He sees what they are and what they were, but he doesn't brand them in that spectrum. He sees them for what they will be on the other side of what he's going to do within their life. And that's what he calls them. You shall be, you are. In Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, the apostle Paul says it with this language. He says, for whom he did foreknow, that is those whom he knew would choose to, to give their heart and open their heart to him. Those he also did predestinate, means their destiny was predetermined beforehand. And here's what that destiny is. To be conformed, to the image of his son, Jesus, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, on top of that, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, that's salvation and forgiveness, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, do you notice what those three words called, justified, and glorified all have in common? They're all in the past tense. And do you notice that all three of those past tense words were spoken over each life in a predestinated context? Meaning that before you were even born, God saw you and I sitting here tonight. He knew that you would open your heart and receive Christ In his mind and in his view, you were called, justified, and glorified, completed before you even raised your hand and prayed a sinner's prayer. That the way God sees your life here tonight, if you're in Christ, and you better hear that part, if you're in Christ, is that he sees you perfected and already conformed into the image of his son. And that's the way God deals with you and I. Not according to what we were, or even according to what we are, but according to what we will be when we're glorified through the resurrection that will come. That's the way that God sees our life. Now, for that reason, what he also calls us to is that we are to no longer look at one another according to the outward appearance. We no longer know any man or woman according to the flesh. We don't look at people and evaluate them based upon what they were or what they even are or the things that define them in the world or did define who they were. None of that means anything any longer because if any man or woman is in a Christ, is in Christ, they are a new creation. And what they are is as undiscernible as it was for anyone trying to size up Jesus. You cannot possibly see when you look into another human life what God sees. You can't. Only God can see it. We know no man after that flesh. Now, what that means for you and I that are here tonight as believers, it means that if we are in Christ, if you're in Christ here tonight, everything that you are or were after the flesh is passed away. It is no longer. It is all completely new. Sometimes I'll run into a person that will come up to me and say, you know, I really love God and I really want to serve him. But there's something in my past that I feel like uh, disqualifies me from doing that. I was divorced before I came to Christ, or I killed someone before I came to Christ, or I did some really wicked and awful things. And and sometimes I I have people come, or I talk to people, or I think about my own experience, and they'll talk about things that were residual sins that carried into their salvation. Before I came to Christ, this was the kind of lifestyle that I lived. And in all openness, when I came to Christ, some of those things didn't die right away. And so the result was that after the fact, there were sins in my life that caused big problems in me and in others. Or maybe there was a divorce after the fact, you know, a marriage that was uh, um, bound beforehand, but that broke apart afterwards. And, you know, and, and so am I therefore disqualified 
from being something in, in the church or from serving God in a certain way or from being saved in whatever way. Listen, here's what, here's what it means that you're a new creature in Christ. It means that old things are passed away and behold, all things become new. We have a tree in our backyard that I really want to cut down because there's about two years worth of firewood in it. But at the same time, I don't want to cut it down because it is so incredibly large that it feels like killing something that old is just wrong. I mean, it's just massive. It's just a huge, huge oak tree. Furthermore, my kids don't want me to cut it down because it's the only tree on our entire property that has the perfect swing branch. And it had a swing on it, and the branch was fine. The rope gave out, you know, so the swing fell. But something happened about a week ago. So it was, you know, a wind, one of these spring storms that we have. And the swing branch, which is the lowest branch on the tree, snapped in half about halfway up, up its place. It doesn't affect the swing spot, but it, but it broke on the other side of that. It just broke right off and fell to the ground after all the leaves had sprung. And an interesting thing happened, phenomenon, when you look at that tree branch that broke off. All of the leaves on that tree appeared for several days as though that branch was still alive and healthy. Now, the truth of the matter is that that branch was as dead as it will ever be the moment it was detached from the trunk of the tree and the roots in the ground. It was dead. It was gone. But there was residual life left in it because that's the way it works. It doesn't die off. All those things don't die off immediately, even though it was already dead. Now, today, you look at that tree branch a week later, and all of those leaves are withered, and the branches have begun to dry out, and you can tell that that branch is dead and detached. It no longer exists. It's gone. So also it is in the life of a believer. We're rooted in this world. Our, our, our affection and our substance is rooted in self and selfishness and in the, the effects and the fruit of the fall. And the result of that is that there's sin within us. The leaves that blossom and the things that come out of our life are iniquity and transgression and wickedness. It's what we are before we know Jesus Christ. Now, when we come to Jesus and we say, God, I open my heart to you and I want you to come inside, at that moment, the life of the flesh is cut off. The branch breaks. We are crucified with Christ, the Bible says. And, and, and the source of what that was no longer is. And so we're, we're broken off from the flesh. But if you look at our lives, there's still residual sap from the old man that lives in us. You say, well, it seems to me I've been walking with Christ for a year, two years now, and it seems like some of these things are still in me. Some of those affections, some of the fruit of what I was is still there. Listen. If you look at it on the outward and judge it according to the appearance, you're absolutely right. It's still there, but it's dead. It's no longer attached to the source. It's only a matter of time before those things wither and die off within your life because God's not going to leave those things there. Now, conversely, on the other side of that, every one of us that's been broken off from the self-life has also been grafted into the tree of life, the vine that is Jesus. And as soon as we are attached or grafted into the vine that is Jesus, a new life source begins to flow within us. But it's deep on the inside. And it takes time for the things of God and the image of Christ and the things of Christ to work their way out to the tips of our branches and begin to bear fruit within our lives. Some things might be absolutely immediate. There's a vitality. There's a life. We know that we've been saved. But some of the fruit of walking with Christ doesn't appear for many years because it works from the inside out. Do you understand? And so there's an overlap. And what that means is that we can no longer look at one another and judge according to what we see with the outward eye. We can't say, well, that person's an adulterer because they were an adulterer in the world. No, they're cut off from that. There might be some residual effects of it that are still dying, but they're not that any longer. God doesn't see that. We might look at that person and we say, well, that person doesn't have the joy of the Lord within their life. It might not be manifested yet, but the roots are there. The sap is there. It's only a matter of time before the image of Christ is conformed in them. We might say of our own life, I don't feel like I know the love of Christ in the way that I should within my life. I don't feel it constraining me. I get it. 
but I don't have it. I don't possess it. Listen, it's just a matter of time before the sanctifying work of the Spirit consumes the parts of your life that you're not seeing consumed as of yet that are a distraction to you. So we no longer know anyone after the flesh because we're a new creation in Christ Jesus. God sees us as we will be, not as we are. So he sees us as we are. He's also making us what we aren't. It's what he's doing as he works the life of Christ within us, making us what he created us to be. And it works according to his love. I don't know about you, but I know for me that the way God consumes more of my life and the way the things of Christ are formed in me more and more and all things become new is that as he wins my trust, I yield more and more of my life to him. As I find that he's trustworthy and that I can trust him, that he's not going to take my life and waste it or use it in some way that, that, you know, or make me do something that I don't want to do or, you know, make me give up things that really are valuable or whatever it is, that as he wins my trust and I say, God, I give you this part of my life, that it allows him then to fill it with his love and to do something with that part of my life that's better than anything I ever would have been able to do with it. And that's how it works. He wins our trust. We yield to him. He fills more of the life. And thus we are consumed. He changes us from what we, are, what we were to what we then shall be. Now concerning this truth that Paul is laying out before us of being new creations in Christ, he tells us a couple of things about it as he moves on into verse 18. Notice how he begins there. He says, and all things are of God. The first thing that Paul tells us concerning our being a new creature in Christ is that this process that's taking place in each one of us is initiated by God, that all things are of him. It means initiated by him. The Bible teaches us that he's the one that sought after us. Not that we sought him, but that he sought us and that he loved us and that his demonstration of that love is that he died for us. John writes it this way in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. He says, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins or the substitution, the atonement, the one that would take our sins in his place. See, the love that we receive from him is not a love that we initiated. Well, God, I want you in my life. Would you please accept me? That's religion. But no, this is different. This love pursued us. God so loved the world that he gave. He's the initiator. He's the one that initiated this new covenant relationship that we have with him. It was initiated. All things are by him. Second of all, he tells us there that it's motivated by a desire for relationship. Notice, it says all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. That what motivated God to pursue us in his love was that he wanted a relationship with you and I. He uses the word reconciled there. He says that he reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. The word reconciled implies that there was a relationship that had been breached or broken. That there was at one point a link or a unification or a communion between man and God, but that that relationship was somehow severed. Something happened that brought enmity where there once was peace. And we know the story. Adam was there in the garden. God said, in the day you eat of it, you will die. You'll be cut off. And Adam ate from it and was cut off. And from that time, every descendant of Adam is born into this world an enemy of God. We are not his friends at our birth. And yet God wasn't content to leave us with that destiny and with the conditions that that would bring. And so his plan was that he would initiate the reconciliation process. And that he would do that by coming into this world clothed in human flesh. That he would live the perfect life that man was destined to live. But that he would take upon himself the punishment for the sins that man committed. 
that every sin that you and I committed in our life would be laid upon Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And that in so doing, God in his justice would be able to pay the penalty for sin, but he would be able to lay it upon himself, opening the door for the restoration of that relationship. It was by Jesus Christ that God initiated reconciliation and he did it because he wanted relationship with you and me. That's what drove him. Now that humbles me to think about. Think about God wants a relationship with you, not with us. Do you understand the difference? It wasn't that he was looking for a collective body of people that he could enlist as servants in his courts. God wanted a relationship with you that was based on love. And with you in mind, as though you were the only one, and if you were the only one, it would be the same thing. He sent his son into the world. And he took a list, an itemized list of every sin and shortcoming that you have or had or ever will have. And he agreed to take the punishment and penalty for every one of those things so that you could be brought back into a relationship with him. He initiated it, motivated by a desire for relationship. It says, all things are of God who has reconciled to himself us to himself by Jesus Christ. And then number three, concerning this truth of being a new creation, it comes with the responsibility. Notice, it says, and he has given to us now the ministry of reconciliation. He's given to us a ministry. The word ministry means service. And that is that God has given to us a service. And what is that service? Is that we are to be agents in this reconciliation process between God and the creation that he is seeking to redeem and reconcile to himself. We are the servants of this ministry of reconciliation. Now he describes it in verse 19. Notice this. To wit, you see that? Circle those words. Close by, write the words even like or just like, because that's what they mean. We can just say that. Just like God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses, their sins, unto them, and now he has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So what he's saying is this. He's saying, listen, just like God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses, just like that, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Just like what? Just like God was in Christ. What does that mean? Listen, because this is the answer to the question that founded this entire study. What does God want with my body? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now, God is in us. And the purpose for God being in us outside of relationship and intimacy and transformation is that God now wants to use us as agents of reconciliation to reach the rest of a lost and dying world that has yet to know this love and to come into a redeeming relationship with their Savior. That's what God wants with you and I. Why does God say, give me your body and I'll give you my spirit to possess it? Not just for transformation, an experiential love, but also that we might be agents in this reconciliatory process wherein God wants to call people unto himself. We have this ministry. Notice what he calls us in verse 20 because of it. He says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you through us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. He calls us this. Now listen, if he's given us the ministry or the service of reconciliation, and he's doing that by giving us his spirit, God in us to reflect through us, then that means a couple of things absolutely have to happen in my life if I'm gonna be effective in this ministry. If I'm gonna fulfill the calling that God gave me, then first of all, I absolutely must be Christ-like, right? Right? I mean, why is it that so many people were attracted to Jesus? It wasn't just the miracles that he did. That held people for a little while. But there was more. There was something about his person. 
There was something that the way, about the way that he dealt with people, the way that he would look a sinner in the eyes and love them with a supernatural love. They felt welcomed in his presence. There was something about him that was so alive, that was so vibrant. There was a fire in him, and it attracted people, so much so that they would lay down every part of their lives. They'd give up everything. If they knew that he was going to be anywhere near where they were, they wanted to be there. If it meant that they had to run around the Sea of Galilee while he went across in his ship, that's no small thing. I've seen the Sea of Galilee. It's big. You couldn't just walk around it in a half an hour. But they would do it. No matter where he was, they wanted to be there. Why? Because there was something about the way he was that attracted them. There was a light. There was a life. There was a savor. And if God wants to be in us the same way, then the character and nature of Christ must be forged within us. And it can only happen as we yield our lives to the Spirit of God and allow him to possess us and to create that work in us, to create us in Christ Jesus. We've got to be Christ-like if we're going to be ministers of this reconciliation, letting him in to change us. We must also have, if we're going to be successful in this ministry of reconciliation, we must also have his love flowing through us. See, the love of Christ, it reaches us and it changes us, but his desire is that it would also flow through us. Now, I confess, and I'm confessing this for you too because I know you're the same as me like this. I don't know how to love a person the way that God loves a person. It's not in my capacity to love someone with unconditional love the way that God loves us with unconditional love. I don't know what it means to lay down my life for someone else. I know what it means to lay down my life for someone else for pride's sake or duty's sake or for some other sake, but I don't know how to do that just out of love. I don't have that capacity within me. And so I must have the love of God supernaturally given and then imparted and manifested through my life to others if I'm going to be this. It's absolutely necessary. If I'm going to be successful in the ministry of reconciliation, beseeching people in the place of God in Christ to be reconciled to God, then there must be some element of that love coming out of my life. Otherwise, all I am is words. Does that ring a bell? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Though I know all mysteries, though I possess all knowledge, though I have all wisdom, but if I have not love, I'm nothing. I'm a sounding brass. I'm a tinkling cymbal. I must have the love of Christ flowing in and through my life if I'm going to be successful in this ministry of reconciliation. It has to happen. I also, if I'm going to be effective, have to be willing to carry the message as the Spirit leads, right? If, if God wants to beseech the lost world through me, then it means at some point I'm going to have to give that message, right? It says that he's committed unto us the word of reconciliation. It's a word. It's something that has to come out. The gospel message, it must be portrayed, it must be conveyed, it must be imparted and given. As God gives opportunity and leading, I've got to be willing to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those that are lost and trust that God is going to empower that message and do his work through it and through me. But I've got to do it if I'm going to be a minister of the new covenant of, of, of this reconciliation. And it must, and it means I also must be willing to not look at the outward of someone's life. Now, this is where it changes from the believer to the unbeliever. Have you ever looked at a person, I know that I have, and mistakenly had the thought, that person can never be saved. They're far too gone. They've sinned themselves beyond the reach of God's love and of God's compassion. And even if God would save them, because we know that he'll save anyone, they'll never receive it because they've just gone too far. They're too far. This bids me that I not look at them that way. Is that if God could reach anyone, then God can reach everyone. And he's committed to me this ministry with the responsibility that I don't make that judgment call and say, God, I look at that person and they cannot be saved, but I look at that person and they can be saved. Sometimes we, 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 we talk about um, someone that we're witnessing or evangelizing we say, they're this close. Have you ever said that or heard someone say that to you about someone that they're witnessing to? They're this close. 
or about another person. They're miles away. That person will never get saved. And have you ever noticed how you can be dead wrong on either one of those two assessments? You can think they're this close, and yet they never come. And you can look at the person who seems to be miles away, and they're the one that gets saved. Because we can't judge. We can't look at the outward of how God is going to draw someone in their life. We have to be willing to love unconditionally and to reach out to anyone whom God would lead in our path. He calls us ambassadors. Do you know what an ambassador is? An ambassador is a citizen living abroad on a mission. That's an ambassador. Someone who is sent from one kingdom as an emissary to another kingdom to represent that king the king of that kingdom. Now think about the privilege that it is that you and I are called ambassadors for Christ. You represent Christ in the world today. You don't represent a person of Christ. You represent Christ. That's what an ambassador is. I have a friend. Actually, it's a family, and the family is friends. And they work for the State Department And her assignment is that she is the assistant to the ambassador in whatever country she's assigned. And so she's been in Spain, and then she spent time in Croatia, and they're currently serving uh, the ambassador to, the U.S. ambassador to the Netherlands at this time right now. And she was sharing with us some of the stories that, um, of the things that they've experienced in that position through the years. And she was sharing of one time that uh, she was in Croatia, and she was with the ambassador to Croatia at that time. And she said that Robert Gates, who was the defense secretary under George W. Bush, uh, had come in to the embassy uh, there in Croatia to pay a visit and to do some business. And she said it was the most amazing thing that, that, that happened when Robert Gates came. I mean, he was the secretary of defense, meaning that under the president himself, he is the highest ranking military official in the United States uh, government or, or military. And yet, she said, when he stepped onto embassy grounds in Croatia, the ambassador outranked him. Because outside of U.S. territory, the ambassador's authority is equal to the president of the United States. He represents the president. And so therefore, when Robert Gates came on the embassy grounds, he had to come up and pay homage to the ambassador and not the other way around which would never happen on U.S. soil. She said it was the neatest thing. She said, I actually took his beret and put it on my head at one point. She said, I wasn't supposed to do that, but <laughs> took a picture. Anyways, you know, but, but do you get the idea of what it means that we are ambassadors for Christ? It means that we have the authority of Jesus Christ in this world as his representatives, as ambassadors. As long as we are not in heaven's grounds, we have his authority. That's amazing. It's remarkable. Because it means we represent him to the world that we live in. It's as though we were him. Now, don't carry that too far. You are not Jesus. You are not God. You're possessed by him. You're owned by him and dwelt by him, used by him. But we do carry his authority within this world. And he gives us permission to do that. The fact that we are ambassadors also means that every resource that heaven has to give that it would give to Jesus is also available to you and I. If I was the sending party and you were an ambassador and you were representing me, that would probably never happen. But if it were happening and I sent you and I said, I'm sending you in my place and I want you to represent me. And you said, okay, I'm willing to do that. But in order for me to do that, I'm going to need such and such things. I can tell you that I would withhold nothing that was within my power to give you if it was going to help you to represent me or to fulfill your mission in some way. And what that means for you and I is that as ambassadors for Christ in this world, every resource of heaven is at our disposal in order for us to complete and fulfill our mission. God will withhold nothing from us that we would need in order to represent him rightly. Now, that gives us great authority in prayer and confidence in prayer, doesn't it? Because it means that we can go to God and we can say, God, you're calling me to be a servant of reconciliation to a lost and dying world, but I feel completely unequipped to fulfill that task. If, God, you want me to represent you in this way, then I'm going to need a baptism of fire and power in your Holy Spirit. 
I'm going to need to know your love in a way that I've never known it and have an amount of it to give away that I don't have or to know it in a way that I don't presently. God, I'm going to need gifts of your Holy Spirit and supernatural wisdom and knowledge to be able to fulfill this task that you've called me to. God, I need power to love this person that in myself I hate tremendously. God, I need the joy of the Lord to be my strength because I don't have it in the way that I should. God, I, and, and we can bring to God those petitions and requests and we can ask him to give to us the things that we need in order for us to fulfill our mission. Now, if you were a slack ambassador for me and you were going into a place and you, know, you had a task and a calling but you weren't fulfilling that calling, I might be reluctant to give you some of the things that you asked for because I might say, well, why do you want that? But if I knew that you wanted those things because you were using them to represent me, I would withhold nothing. And thus the Bible says that he will withhold no good thing from us. And so we're ambassadors for Christ uh, uh, in this. Every resource is available. In that we're ambassadors, it also ensures this, that we are guaranteed protection and safety and covering in this world. That's one of the highest priorities of any kingdom that sends ambassadors to another kingdom is to make sure that their emissaries are safe in the place that they are at. And any kingdom that's going to declare war or that knows war is coming into another kingdom, the first thing that they'll do is they'll call their ambassadors home or make sure that they're in a place where they're safe or out of harm's way. And we have that confidence as ambassadors for Christ that he knows where we are he knows what we're doing, and he's going to ensure that nothing happens to us that shouldn't happen to us in the world that we're in. And it also means, finally, and listen here if you've tuned me out, tune back in. If you're an ambassador for Jesus Christ in this world, it means that you are always on duty. That as long as you are in this world, you are in this world for his purpose, for his mission, and to fulfill his calling in his world. And here is the mission. He gives it to us in the second half of verse 20. Here's our mission. He says, we pray you or beseech you in Christ's place. Be reconciled to God. Our mission is to do everything in our power to win the lost unto a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And every one of us is going to do that in a different way. Or, or have a different part to play in that process of what it is. Some of us are going to do that in raising kids because that's, that's, that's what God's called us to do and given us to do. And so we're equippers in equipping our kids to be able to unfold their gifts and to be able to go out and serve Christ in the way that he's called them. Some of us are going to do that on the front lines of ministry, sharing one-on-one -on -one with people in our workplaces or in our neighborhoods or amongst our family members, giving them the gospel, pleading with them and praying for them, asking God to reveal himself through us to them that they might be saved. Others of us, like me, primarily my function is as a teacher or an equipper in the body of Christ to equip people with the understanding of who God is and the sanctifying process in their lives so that they might grow up and bear fruit and use their gifts where God has called them to be. Every one of us in our sphere of influence where we've been called in this world to share with people one-on-one. -on -one. But all of us are on mission. And as long as we're in this world, we are ambassadors for him. And therefore, the character of Christ must be constantly formed in us. The power of Christ must be constantly manifested through us. The love of Christ must be constantly changing us and moving through us to reach out and grab a hold of other people. The resources of Christ must be used by us as we fulfill the calling that he has for us. And the mission of God must be fulfilled in us as we pray lost people in Christ's place be reconciled to God. So if we take all of this that we've spoken tonight in summary, here's where we are. Is that the person of the Holy Spirit is looking to fill our lives with the person of Jesus Christ and with his love. And his objective in doing that is to take full possession of our lives for the purpose of giving us his purpose for our existence. And that is that we are citizens living abroad and that he's willing to give us every resource necessary that we might be successful in our mission. And here's how we got here. It's verse 21. It's the last verse that we look at tonight. He says, for he, that is God, 
has made him, that is Christ, to be sin for us. Not to be a sinner, but to be sin. Who knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Is that God laid on Jesus Christ every sin that was ever committed. And he became that sin. Light became darkness. Life submitted to death so that we who were in darkness and we who were dead might be made alive by faith in his name. And the reason why you and I sit here tonight as beneficiaries of the new covenant and dwelt by the Spirit of God, constrained by his love, changed by it day by day, and used by him to reach a lost and dying world is because Jesus Christ was willing to pay the ultimate price of stepping down from heaven's throne, being clothed in human flesh, taking our sins upon himself, dying, being buried, rising again, and allowing the person of the Holy Spirit to now come not just into the world, but into our very soul, into our lives, and to affect us with this change, making us who we could never be on our own. As we close tonight, and the musicians can come, In a group this size, here's what I know. If the group was only five people here tonight, this would still be true. But in a group this size, I absolutely know this, is that there are some people here tonight that are still unsaved. Is that you have yet to come into this new covenant relationship with God wherein the Spirit of God is indwelling your life and living inside of you. And my word to you tonight, God's word to you tonight is this is that God loves you so much that he's willing to look over every part of your life, every transgression, every trespass, every sin, and lay them upon his son instead of you. And that if you would open up your heart and say yes to God, he'll say yes to you. And he'll wash away every single one of your sins, casting them as far as the east is from the west. He'll write your name in his book in heaven give you the gift of eternal life and begin a work in you of taking away everything that is of the old and birthing in you everything that is new. And that door is still yet open to you and I would beseech you tonight to give heed to the word that's being shared and spoken. I also know tonight that there are people here that are saved, they've given their lives to Christ, but they are yet unsurrendered. They haven't yet allowed the Holy Spirit to fill them. And your life is still very much your own. And you haven't accepted the call of God to consume all of your life. My word to you tonight would be this, is that you would open up your heart to the love of Christ in a way where you would let him show you that everything you are apart from him will eventually find its end in nothing it will all die. And the only thing that will ever come out of your life that is good or that is lasting is what he puts there or what comes from Christ in him or in you. And so therefore, it's your reasonable service to surrender your life completely to him, every part of it. To hand him the keys to every room, every cupboard, every drawer. To let him search out, empty out, possess, plant, build, fill, your life however he wants. It's the only life that will ever matter. I beseech you tonight to open up your heart to him to do that. I believe that tonight there are people here that are saved and maybe they're even surrendered and willing to give their lives to him, but they feel unequipped. I want to live this kind of life, but I feel like I don't have the things that I need. I want you to know tonight that he's withholding nothing from you that it's yours for the asking. The Bible says that you have not because you ask not. And I would ask you tonight to just think in the quietness of your own mind, what do you need in order for you to be an ambassador for Christ in a greater measure? Or for you to just surrender your life to him in a greater measure or to know him in a greater measure? God, I need more of you. I need to know more of you. Ask him for that. God, I need, I need a little bit more strength because I find that I don't possess the strength that it takes to be what you've asked me to be. Ask him for that strength. The Bible says that he's the God of all 
might. And he's able to fill us with all might according to the working of his glorious power that works in us through Christ Jesus. You might say, I need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I need to be awakened. Whatever you need here tonight, ask him for it with the surrendered intent of serving him with that which he gives. And there's also people here tonight that you're saved, you're surrendered, you know what the mission is, you know what your gifts are, but you need to be stirred up. You need God to reach into your life and shake you awake and and you need to be revived. I want you to know tonight that that's available. The Bible says in Acts chapter 2 that times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. And that when we ask him to fill us with his Holy Spirit, he fills us on one condition. Is that he doesn't fill us just to fill us. He fills us to flow through us. Someone in the prayer meeting tonight reminded me that there are two bodies of water in the land of Israel. There's the Sea of Galilee and there's the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea are both fed by the Jordan River. One of those two bodies of water, the Sea of Galilee, is teeming with life. The other, the Dead Sea, has absolutely not one living organism in it. It is completely what it is called, the Dead Sea. Do you know what the difference is? One only takes in and never gives out. That's the Dead Sea. It's so mineral rich that nothing can survive in its waters. The other, the Sea of Galilee, teeming with life. Do you know why? Because it takes in, fed by the spring waters up in Dan, Tel Dan, fed by the well, but then it gives out. It takes the water in and then it gives it away. And if you're here tonight and you're stagnant and you're dry and you need to be stirred up, perhaps you need to be reminded that you're an ambassador and you need to recommit your purpose to God and say, God, I'm in this world. Use me in this world. And I can tell you this, that as you begin to give out, God will give in. He'll give it to you. So where are you tonight? Who are you sitting here? I would ask you, I would beseech you, that you wouldn't waste the last hour of your life by leaving here the same way you came in. Whichever of those people you are, are you willing tonight, even as we sing this last song, to lift up your heart to the Lord and say, God, this is what I am, but make me what I should be. Make me what I can be. Make me what you alone can do within my life. I know this, God's not a liar and that he will meet you where you are, right here, right now. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the truth that it gives to us. We thank you for the hope, for the love, Lord, that constrains and fills our lives. We thank you for the calling and the privilege of being in the world at this time, and that we each can serve a place and a purpose in your cause. So tonight, Lord, we desire to lay our lives down on the altar of living sacrifice, to yield ourselves completely to you. And we ask you, Lord, that you would meet with each one of us. So give us those things that we need as we lay our hearts before you now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.